Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast. One true chapter by chapter podcast, going through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week. I am your host, Jeff, better as Brenda B. Fish, and I'm um, here. I'll by myself. Where's Emmett? Where'd he go, man? Ah, uh, well, Emmett, of course, is taking a well-deserved break and vacation this week. If you guys have been following his Twitter accounts, him and Chloe's Twitter accounts, that is, you are in for a treat. Go ahead and take a look at them and find out what Emmett and Chloe are up to this week. It is fun. Anyways, welcome to the inaugural episode titled, I Am Right. The five-year gap was bad, in which, in this episode, I talk about why I am right. And the five-year gap is bad. This episode is brought to you by our Not A Small Council, our Hand of the King, Wolfman Zach, Grand Maester Tim Bob, Troubleshooter of Systems and Designer of Circuit Boards, Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Mark N., Sir Keith J., Master of Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Archmaster Joom, Heel of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, War of the North, Nelson Hammer, Prince of Dragonstone, Scarlet the Other Rebel Woman, and Mistress Whispers. Lord Micah, the Quilt Lion, War of the West, Harold the Gold Tooth, Master of the Bainfort, and the Kraken's Bane. Lord James, the Jim that was promised. Lord Jacob Sisson, to the Hand of the King, Lady Zena of Lyrium, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur and Prince, Rhaegar Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club. His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Lawrence, Prince of Dorne, Kelly, Ward the East Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, the Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew the Restless, a Priest of the Drowned God, Sir Sorcedelica, Sugar Tit Stent, the Trog Delight Warrior, Lord Penchant for Nostalgia, Queen Alex, Beyonce's favorite stand, Herald of Sharon, Ambassador of Chromatica, Exalter of Black Lives, and Veteran of Trans Lives, Rainbow Commander, Ladies and Gentle Thems, and the Not a Cast, Non Binary, Not an Army. Hall of Earth, the way for T.Y.L., A.A. Ron, Dampere, Prophet of the Forsaken, and High Priest of Euron Crozai, Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H-Town, Veneris of House Colgarian, the first of her name, Princess of Dragonstone, Mistress of Art, the Overworked, Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser in the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee the Great, Game of Thrones, Portress of the Realm, Lady Realist of the Seven Kings, Letter Paints, Maker of Drawings, and the Michelangelo of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Lord Adam T., Lady Alexander of Tarth, Sir Christoph Logos, Bloody Scorpio of the Redfield, Defender of the Letter of Kim, and the Wolverine of House Corgoyle. Lady Elizabeth, Mistress of Horse, Face, Lesbians. Sir Josh Snow, Bastard Bounty Hunter of the North. Surveyor, Chief of Parties in the Frozen Wastes. Lord Peter, the Dead Shepherd Reborn, Preacher of the Poor Fellows. Marshall Harrison, Absent Shipwrecked in the Jade Sea. Grave Rob Stark, the Cadaver Gang and Horror of Heron Hall. Olaf, proponent of establishing a feudal, pseudo-democratic system of great councils wherein every count votes. Sir Tim, the Knight Who is Guided by Voices. Lord Nick, Thucydides, Lord of Plagues, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dan, Prince Rager Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club, Part 2, Lady Anna, the Lovely Castellan, Pat Ironwood, the Blood Royal and Guardian of the Boneway, Luke, Lord of Lone Leaf and the Pillar of Autumn, Joe Snow, King of the Metro North, King of the Metro North and Protector of the Tri-State, Squire Matt S, Future Matt S, the one who will bring balance to the kingdoms, Lord Kyle, Lord Samuel Seaworth, Sir Max, Lord Commander of the Constitutional Guard, Lady Ivory Dane, aspiring noble author in the Seven Kingdoms, Lady of Starfall, Words to the South, and the patron of free-wheeling bisexuals. Lady Jamisa, she who suggests the coconuts migrate. Lord Christoph of Arendelle, official ice master deliverer, the valiant pungent reindeer king, keeper of feisty pants, and prince consort to his ginger sweet love queen, Anna. Lord Sir Septon Brothers, Sir Grizzly Adams, the king's justice, war of the king's wood, and the sheriff of the Seven Kingdoms. Sir Kel, contractor in charge of, of continually extending the small council table. Lord Travis, Master Mentat, Master of Ships and Third Stage Guild Navigator. Lord Anonymous II. Lord Tyler, the prince that promises to wait patiently for the winds of winter. Lord D.B., Sister Winner, the former High Lady who has joined the small council with the new title, Sister Winner, Hopeful, Romantic, and Unrepentant Shipper. And Lord Monsef. Thank you to all of our small council patrons. And then at this point, Emmett would say, thank you as always. And our spoiler wing, as you say, in every episode, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three Dunkin' Devils, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, a TV show. Anything and everything. So normally here we'd have a question, but not here. We'll resume questions from all of our sworn sort of higher level patrons next week when we return with the Storm of Swords, John 1. For now, let me remind you that we have a Patreon over at patreon.com forward slash notcast ASOAF. It helps support us. You get awesome shit for supporting us like our detailed show notes, bonus episodes that cover things like The Winds of Winter or George R. R. Martin's 1982 novel Fever Dream, theories like Who Wrote the Pink Letter, 
Character analysis on folks like Robert Baratheon, detailed explanations of A Song of Ice and Fire historical events like the Greyjoy Rebellion, takes on cinema, like our recent episode coming soon on one of our favorite movies, Waltz with Bashir. Questions and answers for our sworn, sworn, above patrons where you can ask us questions be forced at gunpoint or sword point, depending on what you really want to do to us. Uh, uh, what do I say? To answer on our, our weekly episode, it's a free shirt designed by the amazing Mallory, aka San Rixian, access to the Noslack where we fuck off and talk about a song of ice and fire movies, working out, which I do, by the way. Politics, weekly mini-sodes where Emmett and I go off script and bullshit about a song of ice and fire and the chapters are covering for like 15 minutes max and more before we come on air. We're hoping, again, to get to 1,050 patrons because it'd be fucking sick, bro. And when we hit that number, we'll be doing a multi-part analysis of Theon's The Wind's Winner sample chapter. And I think it would just be really cool. Seriously, you can support us for like a dollar a month to get our show notes and like $5 a month to get all of those bonus episodes, like our Nobel Prize winning five-part analysis of, of Aaron Dampier's The Forsaken, The Wind's Winner chapter. And higher level patrons and higher levels for Q&A, merch, access to the Nutslack, shoutouts, and weekly minisodes by Thar's Hammer. What are savings? That out of the way, let's get to the synopsis of the five-year gap. Prologue. New Year's Day, 2008. Interstate 695, the Beltway. A line of steel, plastic, and brake lights bleeds into the horizon. Stupid. I'm so fucking stupid. Another arctic gust whistles against my car. I can't feel the wind whipping my skin but I shiver anyways. I throw the heat on. The air hits my face cold, slowly warming until the tip of my nose burns. I let the pain linger. At least I feel something. Oh, fuck. Did, that, did I open the wrong document? Oh, how silly of me to advertise the novel of Generation, which will sell billions of copies. Uh, that novel, of course, being The Cautioner's Tale. Hello, literary agents. My DMs are open on Twitter. I digress. So, the five-year gap... Let's let's talk about the five-year gap, folks. The term, what is it all about? And it should be an easy thing to define, but somehow it's hard and confusing to people. Yes, I've read some people who think the five-year gap was the five years it took for George R. R. Martin to write A Feast of Crows. I mean, they have a point, a wrong fucking point, but I understand. And if you're there snickering to yourself, Oh, like, oh, I didn't think that was the case. Just remember that none of you are free from sin either. So let's define what the five-year gap actually is. In short, the five-year gap was a proposed five-year jump in the timeline of A Song of Ice and Fire between events from A Storm of Swords and the fourth book in A Song of Ice and Fire, then known as A Dance with Dragons. Here's George talking about it in 2013. Well, I came up with the five idea of the five-year gap. Time is not passing here as I want it to pass. So I will jump forward the top five years in time. And when I come back to these characters, when they're a little more grown up, and that is what I tried to do when I started writing Feast for Crows. So the gap would have come after A Storm of Swords and before Feast for Crows. So, so that voice. Yeah, I dedicate that George voice to my friend, Admiral Kurd, a.k.a. Aaron, whose YouTube channel you should already be subscribed to. But his George, but his George voice is nearly identical. And seriously, I wasn't trying to plagiarize him. It just kind of came out when I was trying out some George voices, actually the first George voice for this episode. And I also admit it does sound like Mr. Plinkett's voice as well. In developing the five-year gap, George R. R. Martin may have been inspired by his earlier novel Fever, by his earlier novel Fever Dream, which, not to spoil too much of the novel, has a rather lengthy time gap around the two-thirds point in the novel. So, why did George R. R. Martin decide on a five-year gap in the first place? Mostly, it's because the characters were not aging up as quickly as he wanted, and mostly those characters have to do with the children, the children' point of view characters in the story. The original idea when George R. R. Martin wrote A Song of Ice and Fire was that there would be a natural progression in the age of the characters. But George, being George, kept guarding more and more events into the timeline, which considerably slowed down the chronology of A Song of Ice and Fire, as he talked about in 2013. Now, originally, there was not supposed to be any gap. There was just supposed to be a passage of time as the book went forward. My original concept back in 1991 was I would start with these characters as children and they would get older. If you pick up Arya at eight, the second chapter would be a couple months later and she would be eight and a half and then she'd be nine. This would all happen within the space of a book. 
But when I actually got into writing them, the events have a certain momentum. You So you write a chapter, and then in your next chapter, it can't be six months later because something's going to happen the next day. So you have to write what happens the next day, and then you have to write what happens the week after, and the news gets to some other place. And pretty soon, you've written hundreds of pages, and a week has passed instead of six months or the year that you wanted to pass. So you end a book, and then you've had a tremendous amount of events, but they've taken place over a short time frame, and the eight-year-old kid is still eight years old. Another reason why George R. Martin thought the five-year gap would work in the story was that the was the dragons, as he talked about in 2005. I announced the famous five-year gap. I was going to skip five years forward in the story to allow some of the younger characters to grow older and the dragons to grow larger, and for various other reasons. So aging up the children and the dragons and various other reasons were what influenced George R. R. Martin to attempt the five-year gap. But this solution to the problem of the kids aging up fast enough came actually pretty late in the process of George writing A Song of Ice and Fire. In fact, it came between A Clash of Kings and A Storm of Swords. And the first mentions of the five-year gap came up right after George R. R. Martin published A Clash of Kings in 1998 when George told Elio Garcia Jr., I am not completely certain how long a period of time A Song of Ice and Fire will cover. There will be a gap of about five years between the end of A Storm of Swords and the beginning of A Dance of Dragons. But overall, well, we'll have to wait and see. Now, the timing when George developed the five-year gap is actually pretty fascinating because it was right around this time that George also decided to sketch out all of the remaining plot details that would be in A Song of Ice and Fire. In fact, George actually called this an outline of sorts, as he said to Elio back in like 2011 or something like that. Because, you know, because George, as everyone knows, or everyone who studies this meaningless shit knows, is famously adverse to an outline as he is a gardener, not an architect, and yada, yada. You've heard this so many goddamn times. At least I have. Maybe I just read too much of this shit. I don't know. The thing is that this was a separate outline from the 1993 pitch letter. And I think from all available evidence, this is largely the story contours that George R. R. Martin has stuck to even as he puts the finishing touches on his greatest oeuvre that's ever going to be published. That is wild cards, flopped the nuts. Anyways, I think the outline was also the point where George R. Martin decided on the five-year gap. So we're talking 1998 at this point. So the late nineties when, you know, things were happening and, you know, music was good and all the stuff that all the kid, the cool kids are saying these days. I don't know. I'm not a, I'm not a fucking child. So George was just at that point moving into writing a storm of swords. And here's kind of a little theory that I've kind of played around with. Um, I think George, knowing that he was going to jump the story ahead by five years between Storm and A Dance with Dragons, really contributed to both how fast George wrote A Storm of Swords and how plot impactful the story became, especially towards the end of the book, A Storm of Swords. Because every point of view character in Storm has major arc ending stories that both resolved act one that both resolve act one of a song of ice and fire and really fucking slap hard. And the reason why all of these plot ending stories slap so hard, I think was because George knew he had to wrap all of the stories up of a song of ice and fire in order for the five year gap to occur. So if you have the wrong opinion that a storm of swords is the best book in a song of ice and fire, and it's because of all the dynamic plotting and resolution, George R. R. Martin integrated into the book. Okay. Granted, the end of a storm of swords is fucking awesome. I have to admit that. I, I mean, I love a dance of dragons more, but I get it. I understand why you have the wrong opinion that a storm of swords is better. I don't mean to just keep relitigating that episode we did back the first Patriot episode we did back in 2018. Go ahead and re-listen to that one. We had a, our friend bookshelf stud on there to talk about why a dance with dragons is better than a storm of swords. But I do think that the reason why that was so awesome is because George, I think you can have to partially credit the five-year gap for it being that awesome. So let's fast forward to the year 2000. By that time, Storm of Swords was published and was the first book in A Song of Ice and Fire that hit the New York Times bestseller charts. Now, George R. R. Martin goes on a book tour and returns to writing A Dance with Dragons in late November 2000. And this is, the, again, the A Dance with Dragons with a five-year gap in mind. From November 2000 until September 2001, George R. R. Martin ends up writing several hundred manuscript pages of A Dance with Dragons with the five-year gap in mind. Now, do we know what stories were in the five-year gap version of A Dance with Dragons? Yeah, we actually do. Somewhat, I guess. 
Because throughout the years, George R. R. Martin's statements and interviews about the winds, about A Song of Ice and Fire, have been collected by fans. The most famous example is known as the So Spake Martin Archive on Westeros.org, which is a curated collection of sayings George R. R. Martin has made about the series and pretty much life in general since 1991. And it's a archive that's maintained by the founders of Westeros.org, Elio Garcia Jr. and Linda Anson. Additionally, George R. R. Martin has his own blog called Not a Blog, in which between in which he finds occasionally finds time between promoting wild cards and mourning every single New York Giants and New York Jets lost, ends up talking about a song of ice and fire once in a while. Now, there are a lot of statements about the five-year gap contained in those two archives. And over the year, I've collected a lot of information about A Dance with Dragons. That is the book that never was, or where it was, but it didn't have the five-year gap. I don't, I don't, I'm confusing myself here. So to start off with what we know about the plot points from that five-year gap version of A Dance of Dragons, let's talk about Arya Stark. Because Arya seemed to be the character that George wrote a fair amount of material for with the five-year gap in mind. For instance, we know that the earliest version of, the, of Arya's Mercy chapter from The Winds of Winter, the one that he publishes a sample in 2014, was originally written as Arya Stark's first five-year gap A Dance with Dragons chapter. Here's George talking about that chapter back in his Not a Blog in 2014. I mentioned that this chapter had quite a history. It's true. The first draft was written more than a decade ago. Originally, it was intended to be the opening Arya chapter after the infamous five-year gap. Her first appearance in A Dance with Dragons is initially conceived. Then it was supposed to be part of A Feast for Crows, after I abandoned the five-year gap and split the books. Then it was going to be the concluding Arya chapter in A Dance with Dragons, but it seemed like more like an, an opening chapter than a closing one. So shortly before A Dance with Dragons was published, my editor and I agreed to remove it from dance and shift it into wins. So a lot of folks have pointed out that even in the released Arya's sample chapter from The Winds of Winter, there are some rather mature sexual themes in the chapter, like how Arya seduces Raph the Sweetling. Even, I think this is accurate, getting her first kiss from Raph before, of course, murdering the shit out of him, which I guess is kind of justified. I mean, very justified in my opinion. Anyways, we'll, we'll move on from there. What I know there's have theorized is that a lot of this, these mature themes that we see in Arya's uh, Mercy chapter are leftover material from the five-year gap, where Arya Stark would have been about 16 years or so in events from a five-year gap version of A Dance with Dragons Mercy. Meanwhile, there have been hints over the years that a lot of the Arya material that George R. R. Martin wrote for the five-year gap ended up being leftover material that and it's probably going to end up in the winds of winter, if we're going to be honest, because we know that Jonathan Roberts, the artist for The Lands of Ice and Fire, uh, received a batch of Aria, The Winds of Winter chapters set in Bravos in early 2012. And I suspect that these chapters were likely refashioned chapters from the five-year gap. Because remember, Mercy was just supposed to be the first chapter in Aria's arc from the five-year gap version of A Dance with Dragons. And I think there are a lot of other Arya chapters that George ended up writing there that he has absolutely rewritten since 2001. Maybe. Overall, George R. Martin said this about Arya's five-year gap chapters and material from A Dance with Dragons. The gap worked well with some characters like Arya, who at the end of A Storm of Swords have taken off for Bravos. You could come back five years later, and she has had five years of training and all that. So George R. R. Martin's original idea was that the plot would skip over Arya's novice training to become a faceless man and plop her right into her role as an acolyte of the faceless men and get to her doing all that killing shit that George R. R. Martin apparently is really enjoying writing for Arya in The Winds of Winter. Turning next to Sansa Stark, we can be reasonably certain that at least one, probably two or more Sansa chapters were written with the five-year gap in mind. In May 2001, George R. R. Martin was asked a question about custom titles in Westeros, and he responded, well, I am not sure what you mean by a custom title, a title from the books. There are a few in the volume I'm presently working on that readers haven't seen yet. A guy who calls himself the King of Mummers, for instance. Another one who is called Harry the Heir. These are informal titles, though, on par with the Knight of Flowers or the King's Lair or so on. The King Among Mummers was Isambaro from the Mercy sample chapter, and Harry the Heir is a figure who should be familiar to those who have read the Elaine sample chapter that George R. Martin released as a sample in 2015. We can reasonably deduce then that the Elaine chapter was probably written in its original form from the five-year gap. In fact, George R. R. Martin hinted at this when he we talked about finishing a Sansa chapter for A Dance with Dragons in 2008, long after he'd abandoned the gap. I am getting a lot done. Finished an Arya chapter yesterday and a Sansa chapter the day before. 
And before you guys assume I'm writing a chapter day, I said finished, not wrote. Large portions of these particular chapters were written years ago. A chapter a day, I wish. When Adam Whitehead, a.k.a. Werthead, did his Facts and Figures essay on Feast for Crows, he noted, the Winds of Winter is going to be a massive headache because apparently there were one to two Sansa chapters written for the pre-split of Feast for Crows, which aren't showing up until the Winds of Winter. So not a lot of five-year gap chapters for Sansa. I really think probably the max is three, but probably more like two, at least a lane, and then probably one more chapter after that. And, you know, that Sansa material from the five-year gap is actually pretty similar to what is going to be you know, seen in that a published Elaine chapter from The Winds of Winter. Again, Sansa's seduction of Harry the Heir, as suggested by Littlefinger, in similar fashion to Arya's Mercy chapter, reads as a leftover kind of plot point and plot, I don't know, plot like unfolding from the five-year gap when Sansa was like 18, 17, 18 years old. And so ultimately, though, I think my suspicion is that Sansa's plot from the five-year gap will be quite similar to her plot when The Winds of Winter is published next week as material for Sansa in A Feast for Crows was developed after the gap was abandoned. So those three Sansa chapters end up being written after those Sansa chapters from the five-year gap are and ended up getting kind of pushed to the side. So I think we probably, in the five-year gap version, we probably open with the turning of the Winged Knights and Littlefinger's plan to reveal Elaine of Sansa and the probable march north for the Knights of the Vale in a five-year gap scenario. Turning next to Bran Stark. Bran has always been the hardest character for George R. R. Martin to write due to his age. In my mind, I think Bran Stark was one of the primary motivations for the five-year gap in the first place, especially given Bran's role as the future king of Westeros as revealed by the throne show season eight, which is better than most of you all think. How believable is it for an eight or nine-year-old child to get his way onto the Iron Throne and George R. Martin's grounded medieval realism? Regardless, George thought that the gap worked well for Bran, as he said in 2013. Bran was later taken in by the Children of the Forest and the Green Ceremony, so you could come back and fetch him in five years later. That works. Good for him. What is this Green Ceremony, you ask? What, what I think George is referring to here is that extremely creepy ceremony scene from Bran's third chapter in A Dance with Dragons, where the Children of the Forest feed Bran the bowl of paste totally made of werewood sap and not the remains of his friend Jojen all ground up and shit. And then Bran starts to experience visions of the past and so forth. And let's get super fucking in the weird. So now let's get super fucking in the weeds here because here's something I've never connected previously. So in 2008, George talked about finishing a Bran chapter in A Dance with Dragons that took him six years to write. And I think this chapter is that third Bran chapter that ended up being published in A Dance with Dragons. But in the weird, but there's a weirdness there in that 2000, that in 2012, George said he had not written any brand material when he split feast and dance into two separate books in 2005. And what I think actually happened now that I've kind of like put it together in my head is that the green ceremony scene was written for the five year gap. And then George R. R. Martin refashioned it for a dance with dragons with it occurring without the gap. Hence why George said it took six years to write that brand chapter, but he hadn't written anything for A Feast for Crows by the time he split A Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons. Because all of Bran's material for that was written for A Dance with Dragons was written for the five-year gap and then refashioned and rewritten after the split to fit within the timeline of it occurring right after events from A Storm of Swords. Moving on to Marine, we come to Danny and we have a sense of the plot George had in mind for a story in a five-year gap version of A Dance with Dragons. In 2011, right before A Dance with Dragons was published, George was interviewed by Elio Garcia Jr. on Westeros.org about the book he was about to publish and talked a bit about Daenerys in, the, in A Dance with Dragons. There is a dirty scene in the book, which is actually one of the oldest chapters in the book that goes back almost 10 years now. When I was contemplating the five-year gap, Martin laughs here with some chagrin. That chapter was supposed to be the first Daenerys chapter in the book. Then it became the second chapter, then the third, and it kept getting pushed back as I inserted more things into it. I've rewritten that chapter so much that it ended up in many different ways. So what Danny scene was this? Well, I think the context clues point to it being the Daznax pit scene from A Dance with Dragons, which ends up being Daenerys' ninth chapter in the book A Dance with Dragons, when Drogon returns to Marine. 
What's interesting about this scene was that when George later read it as a sample for A Feast for Crows, because Danny was originally going to be in A Feast for Crows in 2003, the scene did not have Danny flying away atop Drogon, as it appeared in the published version. Though this may be due to the fact that, um, that George didn't want to spoil the ending of the scene of Danny becoming a dragon rider seems fair to me. Did she fly away atop Drogon in the five-year gap version of Daenerys 9? It's hard to say. But if this was the intent, it meant that the original Danny arc would have had her not being sticking around Marine at all for a Dance of Dragons. Instead, she would be out on the Dothraki Sea hanging out with all of her Dothraki friends there and uh, probably conquering them and uniting the Kalsar together. So we would not have a Marinese arc for uh, Daenerys in a Dance of Dragons. So that's the Stark siblings and Daenerys. And these those are spots where the five-year gap worked somewhat to very well for these stories. Let's turn to characters where it started to not work out so well, starting with Jon Snow and the king, Stannis Baratheon. At the end of A Storm of Swords, Jon has just been elected Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, or Elsie of the Night's Watch. Yes, when we say Elsie, Lord Commander, you get it? Are you listening? And had a king to face. That was his final final line from A Dance from a Storm of Swords. That was a pretty dynamic jumping off point for the story. And George Martin had written himself into a corner where there'd be some pretty massive plot unfoldings in the story that would have occurred in those five years. However, George R. R. Martin's first thought was, nope, nothing much is happening up at the wall for five years. As he said in 2005, he was writing chapters where John thought, well, not a lot has happened in those past five years. It's been kind of nice. In 2013, he recalled how this was not a good way for the Northern story to unfold. The Jon Snow stuff was even worse because at the end of the storm, he gets elected Lord Commander. I'm picking up there and writing, well, five years ago, I was elected Lord Commander. Nothing much has happened since then, but now things are starting to happen again. In the case of the North, the five-year gap reads as inauthentic storytelling, at least in George's mind as he's writing the story, because it's an artificial time gap that would have made Jon's story seem kind of strange and not terribly compelling. And I'll unpack that a little bit later on. With Stannis, it's really fucking hard to imagine that status is just like dude dude, dude just hanging out the wall just hanging out with my friends enjoying the time all those traders are sitting in the iron throne i'm just gonna hang out here no skin off my back right does that sound like the stannis baratheon that you have read in a song of ice and fire because it sure does not sound like the guy that i know from a song of ice and fire from a clash of kings and a storm of swords i mean sure it's king stannis the sad king is the brooding type but to brood at Castle Black for five years, that's not very believable, especially given how Stannis moved decisively against Storm's End, King's Landing, and on up to the wall in the space of maybe a year at most in Clash and a Storm of Swords. Now, the one plot point from the Northern storyline that we can be fairly confident that George R. R. Martin always intended, even with a five-year gap in mind, was John's assassination. In a 2011 interview, George R. R. Martin told James Hibbard, some of the stuff about Melisandre's warning, uh, warning John of Daggers in the Dark was written 10 years ago. So 10 years before 2000 would have been 2011 would have been 2001 when George was writing A Dance with Dragons with the five-year gap in mind. So John was always bound to face the daggers, however the story unfolded. What's unclear is whether the same set of plot points which drove John to the daggers would have been the same as seen in the published version of A Dance with Dragons. And, you know, I, I've... A while back, uh, Adam Feldman, uh, who wrote the Marinese Knot, those excellent essays on the, on the Marinese Blot, rather, uh, which is a, you all should be reading, uh, published a, a bunch of pieces about how A Dance with Dragons was written. And one of his theories was that the reason why the book took so long to write, in addition to the Marinese Knot and the various difficulties that, that George faced, was that he kept rewriting Jon Snow's story specifically to make it more compelling because he realized that it you know, just John having a wildling arc relets the wildlings through is probably not a compelling story for why John was assassinated. And what made it more compelling was that George kept introducing these other elements into John's story, specifically the elements regarding specifically the are the elements regarding like Arya Stark, Mance Raider, Melisandre, Stannis Baratheon, Alice Karstark. These different plot unfoldings made John's arc and movement towards the assassination much more interesting and dynamic. And it's fairly clear that a lot of those story elements were written, were kind of guarded into Jon Snow's story as George is writing A Dance of Dragons as late as like 2009, 2010, and 2011. So moving on from John, another character where the five-year gap did not work well was Cersei of House Lannister. 
Although George R. Martin has not always been certain, he seemed to have decided to include Cersei as a point of view during the time of writing the five-year gap, correctly deciding that Jaime alone would, as a point of view, would not be able to fully capture the politics of King's Landing and the deterioration of the Lannister-Terrell alliance in the wake of Tywin dying peacefully on the shitter with a crossbow bolt sticking out of him. The problem was that in writing a five-year gap version of Cersei, George R. Martin realized that there were many events which occurred during the five years since Cersei's regency, as he talked about in a 2013 interview. Well, I'm writing the Cersei chapters in King's Landing and saying, well, in five years, six different guys have served his hand, and there is this conspiracy four years ago, and this thing happened three years ago. So to me, what this translates as in you know, layman's terms is how the fuck was Cersei ever going to stay in power for five years, given all of the turmoil in King's Landing that would have unfolded with her in charge. So in contrast to John, where George had this idea that really nothing much is going on at the wall for five years, Cersei's story seemed to be that, <laughs> seemed to be that there was too much going on in those five years. And that it was hard to just go keep telling that story in flashback and in dialogue. Oh, this happened three years ago. This happened four years ago. This happened two years ago. It just kind of, again, even though it's there's a lot of plot points that George was imagining for Cersei's story, the same dynamic exists between hers and John's story, and that it seemed like inauthentic storytelling just to have her just be putzing around for five years and then to pick up her story after all of these plot impactful events have occurred. On to Dorne. So the first two books had Dorne and the Dornishman mostly off stage and mostly there to develop the background of the story. However, with the entry of Oberyn Martell into the story in A Storm of Swords, Dorne came running into the plot of A Song of Ice and Fire. Right after Clash was published, George R. Martin talked a bit about this running entry into the story, into the story saying, the Dornishman will come on stage in A Storm of Swords and will have an even larger role in A Dance with Dragons. As to why they have stayed aloof, well, both history and geography have set them apart from the rest of the seven kingdoms. Remember, so this interview, this probably was an email that George sent to Elio. This email that George sent was right around the time that the five-year gap was integrated into the story of A Song of Ice and Fire. So George had a larger idea for Dorne's story in a post-five-year gap version of A Dance with Dragons. What precisely was that idea? Now, I don't think there's actually a lot to go on here, but we do have one hint of what that kind of larger dynamic was that George was talking about. And it comes from a February 2001 So Spake Martin entry where a fan told George that Oberyn shouldn't have died because he was so cool. Yes. Okay, Oberyn is kind of quiet. Admit. George responded, wait till you meet his daughters. Again, February 2001 is squarely within the timeline of when George was writing a five-year gap version of A Dance with Dragons. So the Sand Snakes would have been big players in a five-year gap version of A Dance with Dragons with interesting roles, allegedly, to play. But Dorne is where George struggled to write a compelling story after the five-year gap, and it became the pivotal reason why he ended up abandoning the gap some nine or ten months into writing it. George R. Martin officially announced that he was abandoning the five-year gap at Worldcon in September 2001, which is a month where I don't think anything else historical happened, if I'm remembering correctly. Officially, the reason why George abandoned the five-year gap was straightforward. This is a quote from a 2003 So Speak Martin. He said that he started writing the book set several years after the events of the last book, but after he was several hundred pages in, he decided that it just wasn't working, that he had left too much out of the story. However, in the years since, George talked about how Jon Snow and Cersei Lannister's stories were reasons why the five-year gap didn't work. But the biggest reason why the gap didn't work, according to George, is because of Dorne and Oberyn Martell, as he revealed in 2002. During a Q&A, George R. Martin revealed what seemed to be a major reason for the five-year gap. He said he realized something. He had to deal with the reaction to Oberyn's death in Dorne. He thought of different ways that he could handle things. He could have just summarized what happened without talking about it very much, but he did not want to do this. He could have decided that for some reason there was no reaction or a delayed reaction, but that those reasons, but the reasons he came up with for to do that thing did not make sense. So he finally decided the story just needed to be told. So he decided that showing the reaction to Oberyn's death had to be seen on page rather than told in flashback and memory. Again, similar to Cersei, where all of her major plot points were going to be just in, you know, flashback and in, in conversation. But th then again, in 2003, George kind of explained a little bit more why Dorne specifically wasn't working with a five-year gap in mind. 
On the five-year gap, this has probably already been discussed before, but here goes. George said that he was writing A Dance with Dragons and was writing the flashbacks. He confirmed that they would have just been flashbacks. And then he realized he couldn't skip things like Marcella being crowned and the resulting Dornish problems, for example. So Marcella Baratheon's crowning by Ariane was an important plot point, which influenced George R. Barton in abandoning the gap because he knew he couldn't just do it in flashback and dialogue. Does, does anyone have a theory about this whole crown Marcella thing? I don't know. I seem to remember something about that somewhere in a drafts of a Google Drive or a Google document somewhere. But here's the thing that has almost been completely unexplored by the fandom. George didn't actually abandon the five-year gap in September 2001. In fact, George's next fuck them kids, why won't you grow up and be hashtag teens or adults idea was a book known as A Feast for Crows. In its original conception, A Feast for Crows was not half of the point of view characters from A Song of Ice and Fire, mostly set in the South and Bravos. Instead, A Feast for Crows was a bridging book that would cover all, yes, all events from the five-year gap so that George R. Martin could get back on track in A Dance with Dragons for the storylines he wanted to tell after a, Feast for Gro after a Feast for Crows got through all of those plot points in the five years after A Storm of Swords. You don't believe me? Fuck, I'm insulted, man. But I will show you the evidence. Follow me into the light. In 2001, at the world, same Worldcon event that George announced that he was abandoning the five-year gap, a fan summarized what George was saying there. The fourth book will be A Feast for Crows and will cover what would have been the five-year gap. Some POVs who George said will be wording during the five-year gap will only have one or two chapters. Then in a 2002 interview, the interviewer asked whether A Feast for Crows would cover the five-year gap period. George's response, I hope to cover the five-year gap. In a 2003, in yet another interview, George Martin talked about what he intended for A Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons. At that point, A Dance with Dragons becomes the fifth book, and the book that I'm now working on, A Feast for Crows, is essentially the book that covers the five-year gap that I previously was going to skip over. Oh, that's an, that's an oversimplification to an extent because it takes a certain amount of restructuring and some of the events that were going to be in the fourth book are pushed to the fifth book while others remain. Now, here's the craziest thing. Even as late as February 2005, a mere three months, yes, three months before George made the decision to split A Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons into two books, George made a convention appearance and was reported to have said this. George thinks there are going to be six books in the series, but he laughed and said that of the five-year gap, A Feast for Crows has only covered four months so far. Others have mentioned seven or eight. Now, look, I know I'm a fucking nerd about all of this shit, but this is kind of mind-boggling that George was still hoping that A Feast for Crows would cover the five-year gap. I mean, at this point, George had like 1,300 plus manuscript pages for A Feast for Crows and had pushed the story along for only like Minimum of four, maximum of eight months. I mean, come on. I mean, for reference, just to, to think about like how the publishing works, especially for A Song of Ice and Fire, A Storm of Swords was 1,521 manuscript pages and A Dance with Dragons was 1,510 manuscript pages. What I'm saying is that it seemed pretty goddamn impossible that George could either edit his work or simply jump another 50 plus months of the timeline and the remaining 200 manuscript pages of space he had left. I mean, my God. And wouldn't you know it, but George R. Martin agrees, or he agreed with me in 2005 when I was like fucking 21 years old in 2005, and I'd never even heard of books before. I mean, to this day, my question remains, what are books again? In those three months between the February 2005 con appearance and the A Feast for Crows publication announcement at Conquest in May 2005, George R. Martin made the decision that he would not do the five-year gap, saying at the, con at the convention, he confirmed that the five-year gap is now deader than the dodo and has fallen back on the excuse that in the Middle Ages, kids had to grow up fast and so that a 12 or 13-year-old would be much more mature than today. He wanted the books to cover a much longer span of time and blames himself for setting the first Catelyn chapter into Game of Thrones on the same day that Rob and John find the direwolves in the snow, which is just <laughs> adorable. In George's mind, the main reason why he kept going after the five-year gap and writing A Feast for Crows as being that bridging book between Storm and Dance was because he didn't want to disappoint the fans, saying, again, at the con. He wasted a lot of time trying to make the five-year gap work, mostly because he had told so many people that there was going to be one and felt he had to deliver. Otherwise, A Feast for Crows would have come out significantly earlier. But my favorite thing that George said about abandoning the five-year gap is something he said closer to the time when A Feast for Crows was published in the United States in November 2005. George said that he would have abandoned the five-year gap sooner if he hadn't told so many fans about it, and there is no gap anymore. 
if a 12-year-old has to conquer the world, then so be it. Fucking needle that. If a 12-year-old has to conquer the world, then so be it onto my face as a tattoo. Okay. So we spent a lot of time unpacking what the five-year gap was, all the plots within the five-year gap look like, how George abandoned it sort of before truly abandoning the five-year gap. And holy shit, we haven't even gotten to the whole point of this fucking episode, which is why I think that the five-year gap was a bad idea in the first place. And it's a really good idea that George R. Barton dropped it. Throughout the fandom, I, I constantly, maybe not constantly, that's probably an overstatement. I sometimes see how people thought that George R. Martin's abandonment of the five-year gap was a massive mistake, that the reason a Feast for Crows and a Dance with Dragons sucked so hard was because they didn't have the five-year gap in mind. Furthermore, a lot of the same criticisms of a Feast for Crows and a Dance with Dragons interrelate to the five-year gap. There was too much walking around, not enough action, too many training sequences, yeah, 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 fuck off. Now, I think the smart listeners here can probably start to glean why I think the five-year gap was a bad idea, but I'll start to make my reasons explicit now. And the first point I want to make is that characters training and learning and being in a school setting is an integral component of storytelling that is de that demonstrates character growth and development. Now, it was probably easier for George not to write Arya's entry into Bravos and her entry into the House of Black and White specifically. It's fun to write characters in media's rays and not have to do all of the hard work of showing how a character got from point A to point B. But while Arya's A Feast for Crows chapters are not actually my favorite parts of the story, let me never say that I don't think they're not important for demonstrating where she is in the story and why she's there. In sailing to Bravos and coming into the House of Black and White, Arya's story continues the thread from A Storm of Swords of her identity. Who is she? Is she Arya of House Stark? Is she Arya the Orphan Boy, Weasel, some random small folk girl trying to survive the war? A Feast for Crows has Arya learned how to be no one-ish through becoming Cat of the Canals and then Blind Beth in A Dance with Dragons. Through the dynamic of name changes, the instruction of the kindly man and Arya's wolf dreams, we see a complex conflict of identity for Arya one that needed to be properly fleshed out and set up in the text for Arya to become Mercy and eventually hopefully getting Needle and returning home as Arya of House Stark. And that same dynamic holds true for Sansa. Her Feast for Crows chapters, the three we have anyways, are instrumental in furthering her character development. Sansa learns how Littlefinger manipulates and holds power, how he uses promises, lies, bribes, manipulation, and threats to deter the Lord's declarant. We also see Sansa learning the subtleties of power and sex through Miranda Royce. Sansa also has to deal with pff, fucking rats like Sweet Robin, who have become the way that he is through the negligence and misparenting of Lysa, and yes, John Aaron too. Finally, Sansa learns Littlefinger's true plan, how he plans to marry Sansa to Harry Harding and that complex series of... I mean, it's, it's great. I love it. But I mean, that complex series of uh, how Harry is actually the heir to, to Sweet Robin. I think Littlefinger spends like a, huge, a massive paragraph, a large paragraph in A Song of Ice and Fire uh, working on him. Um, it, it, which is why, and, and how Littlefinger plans to manipulate the chivalric imagery and ideals to drive the Knights of the Vale North to seize Winterfell and stake Sansa's claim, which will, of course, not have any impact at all on how Littlefinger and Peter Baelish, uh, that motherfucker, is going to uh, become more powerful. Now, many people, and I count myself as one of them, think that Sansa Stark's story in later seasons of the Throne show was a dud because the show simply made Sansa politically smarter than everyone else without the requisite training arc she had in A Feast for Crows. George nearly made the same mistake with a five-year gap version of Sansa. In my opinion, if Sansa showed up on page after the five-year gap as politically savvy, it would have seemed like cheating the story in the same way that a smart Sansa and the later throne show was unsatisfying without the requisite training arc as seen in a feast for crows. When Sansa appears in the North in the winds winter or Drew's I think it's probably likely going to be the winds winter. I think George's decision to not just open the story to a five-year gap version of Sansa where she's a skilled political actor will actually read fairly naturally. And we can already see how Sansa's training arc dovetails nicely with her story in the Elaine sample chapter from The Winds of Winter. All of those chapters from A Feast for Crows feed well into how Elaine won from The Winds of Winter opens and how Sansa is starting to play the Game of Thrones a lot smarter. And the reason why she is playing the Game of Thrones smart is that she's observed how the Game of Thrones has been played in the Vale and observed specifically how Littlefinger, uh, how Littlefinger has been working 
and manipulating the story specifically. And manip- how Littlefinger has been manipulating the Knights of the Veil vale chivalry and the optics in order to drive towards his his end and and purposes and goals. On to Bran. George has always struggled to write Bran's story with him citing, again, Bran's age is the main reason why this has always been the case. For reasons I'll detail a bit later, Bran's story may have been the spot where an aged up Bran might have worked best. However, his three chapters from A Dance of Dragons, four if you count the one that was cut to the Winds Winter, like literally like a few weeks before the, the book was declared done, demonstrate Bran's character development as well as introduce important story elements like all of the cannibalism which will come hot and heavy in the winds of winter. Additionally, Bran is the character with the closest tie to the magic of the series and Bran's three dance chapters, especially his third in the book, start to show the mechanism for how green sight, skin changing, warging, warging, that's the word, warging, heart trees and blood sacrifice intermix in the magical world. Moreover, meeting the three-eyed crow, who is, of course, bluttering, by the way, shut the fuck up, is one of the spookiest, best horror scenes in the books. The three-eyed crow is vital for Bran's character development, and him at being attached to the roots of the werewolf tree shows Bran how he could end up if he ends up kind of becoming detached from his humanity. For that matter, yeah, the throne show did a version of the five-year gap with a one-year gap between seasons four and six for Bran. Bran was not in season five of the throne show because the showrunners wanted his training under Blood Raven's tutelage to occur off page. Did that make for a more satisfying storytelling for Bran? I don't think it did, especially if Bran is being set up to be the end game king of Westeros. So again, it's important if you have a character in mind who's going to be the king of Westeros and you probably want to show him, demonstrate, show him how he's, show how he's learning to rule. I mean, we saw that in Bran in A Clash of Kings, as we talked about, in that, you know, Bran's story in Clash specifically has a lot of foreshadowing for him becoming the king of Westeros because he is so much, he's learning a lot from Lewin and Cassell and all of these different characters in Winterfell. And the Harvest Feast specifically is just very telling as to how Bran as becoming a good leader, even as a child. If you skip over a lot of that training that Bran is undertaking under Bloodraven, who again, was Hand of the King for a short time, and Master Whispers, I think you end up shortchanging the story in the long term. Let's get to Danny. So one of the mysteries for Danny's story in the five-year gap was what happened at the end of her first five-year gap chapter. Was she going to fly away atop Drogon, similar to what happened in Danny's ninth chapter in A Dance with Dragons? Or would she have stayed a marine and faced many of the same obstacles that she encountered in the published version of A Dance with Dragons? For the sake of argument, and because I think this may have been the case, I think one version that George wrote for Danny, probably the first version, was that she ends up flying away from marine at the start of her first five-year gap chapter. And that's bad storytelling, bro. Many fans are particularly critical of Danny's A Dance with Dragons story in the published form because they're frustrated by the malaise of Marine and how terrible Marine is as a setting. What all of these fans miss is, you know, rational judgment and thinking, critical thinking. But I mean, also they miss how Marine is vital to understanding Danny's character evolution because at the end of A Storm of Swords, Danny decides to stay in Marine to learn how to rule thinking it will be a good experiment for her to rule a city-state prior to staking her claim to the Iron Throne. However, there's the, <laughs> however, this turns out to be an exceptionally hard task, as Danny is met with violent resistance, especially from the great masters, especially from the great masters of Marine through the Sons of the Harpy, and then from the external threats like Yunkai and her allies. Moreover, Marine turns out to be extraordinarily dynamic in exploring Danny's human heart in conflict with herself as she makes costly, perhaps too costly sacrifices for peace when a big part of her just wants to roast her enemies and go conquer Westeros. Understandable. In Danny's, if her first chapter in A Dance with Dragons was her flying away, and I admit that is not certain, it would have undercut the whole point of her being in Marine in the first place to learn how shitty it is to actually rule. And while I think Danny's pathway to nuking King's Landing weaves its way through Marine, I do think like if you end up cutting all of that stuff out where Danny is like really trying hard to be a good ruler and to rule peacefully, these people that fucking despise her, I think that really undercuts the events from King's Landing that'll probably occur at the end of the book. 
because I, I do think that Danny does ultimately choose fire and blood over peace at the end of her arc. Dragons plant no trees as what is you know a big part of her story at the end of A Dance with Dragons. And you've, you've heard all of this before, so I feel like I'm kind of retreading already well-tread well-tread well ground. And this, and and I, but I believe that Danny Ten was an exceptionally well-earned plot resolution, which sets up her role at the end of her arc. And then there's John and Stannis. Boy, whew, I have no idea how George planned to pull off John and Stannis' story with a five-year gap in mind. Because I mean, you know, George already outlined his reasons why it worked worse for John, given that nothing was happening in the wall for five years, and that didn't make a lot of sense plot-wise. But the thing I want to drive home is how John's arc in A Dance of Dragons works best with him just assuming the role of Elsie of the Night's Watch. For one, John's recent experience with the Wildlings makes him the only figure truly sympathetic to the plight of the Wildlings and makes his desire to bring them south of the wall that much more poignant and believable. Secondly, John and Stannis were bound to come into conflict, and there's no way Stannis just sits around the wall while Usurper sits at the Iron Throne. It just doesn't make sense. Ask, ask Sir Frank B. Ask him. Ask him. He would know. Third, Storm of Swords has Jamie discovered that Arya is being sent north to marry Ramsay Bolton. Given John's love for his sister, Arya, given, given John's love for his sister, Arya, does it make any logical sense for John just to stew on Arya being given to a monster to marry for five fucking years? Does that make any sense for John's story at all? No, it doesn't. And what in the world are Manson Tormund doing for those five years? Finally, and this is probably the most important point, an inexperienced and young Jon Snow trying his best, making mistakes, and then dying reads as far more believable and tragic than an experienced LC Jon Snow in his 20s getting murked. The tragedy of John's arc in A Dance with Dragons is that the kid did his best, but he was undone by a number of factors. But one of the primary ones was his youth and inexperience. Of course, Ned Stark made his mistakes and lost his head, and he was in his mid-30s, like this guy. But I always felt like one of the points of Jon Snow's story was that a lot of his mistakes came, came as a result of how young he was. And I think it just makes it a better story that John is 17 years old when he's Elsie of the Night's Watch. So when he ends up getting kind of murked by his own dudes, you really get the sense of, you know, it's that, um, I'm trying to remember like uh, what scene it was from, from A Song of Ice and Fire where you, someone's looking at a, at a, at a dead kid and it's like, you, when you looked at him as he's dead, you realized how young he actually was. And I think there's that sense of tragedy. There's that image that makes it, what, what happens at the end of John's story in A Dance of Dragons that much more, um, better you know it's a better storytelling to have him getting murdered at the age of 17 than having him getting murdered at the age of 22 and 23 because yeah i think it, it's a much more believable story and one that i think is is much more compelling in the long term so that so that's john let's turn to cersei and jamie's stories and the biggest point in her story is that within the five-year gap it was just again it I feel like I'm just repeating, I'm just kind of regurgitating, regurgitating what George was saying here, but her story is just too goddamn interesting to be told in flashback and in conversation. I mean, we really had to see the Lannister twins' reaction to Tywin Lannister's death, because I think those scenes are just incredibly dynamic. Jamie standing sigil over Tywin's body, silent as Cersei starts to misrule Westeros, is, is a really good story. Meanwhile, all of the conspiracies that Cersei weaves as Queen Regent are, are again, just too good to tell in retrospect and flashback. And it's hard as well, thinking about the kind of a larger plot point, to imagine that the Tyrell-Lannister tensions would just simmer for five years without boiling over at any point. Doesn't make any sense. Like, can you imagine Cersei just living with Marjorie married to Tommen for five years before moving against Marjorie? No. And how about Jamie? Does he just sit around not doing anything after Tyrion revealed that Cersei has been cheating on him with the Kettleblack brothers and Moonboy for all I know? I don't think so. Ultimately, the five-year gap storytelling in King's Landing would have failed because of that old writing soul, show, don't tell. I think that's a big part of what makes that story specifically not good, a five-year gap version of Cersei and Jamie's story, because you would have been like, oh yeah, Jamie has been thinking about what happened five years ago when Tyrion told him about you know, what Cersei's been doing, and then he has no reaction, and then he starts to have an emotional reaction, like, and then Cersei as well is just, you know, she's apparently keeping it together for five years. Then all of a sudden she has a break after, after a five-year gap and starts to misrule Westeros. I don't think that happens. I think all of that is just bad storytelling in the long term, And it's a good reason why George abandoned the five-year gap. And then finally, let's, let's talk about Dorne a little bit. The main reason why George abandoned the five-year gap. 
if Dorne is as important to the future of the story as it seems to have been in George's setup, we needed to see how the Dornish reaction to everything happening in the story unfolded. Because Oberyn's death, the crying Marcella were all reasons why George decided to forgo the five-year gap. However, to expand out why I think that George needed to actually show Dorne and the present like events immediately after Storm of Swords, I think Dorne works really well as, as had to be seen in the immediate aftermath of Oberyn's death. Because when Doran Martell returns to Sunspear with all the Dornishmen shouting, to the spears, to the spears, it's a real visceral experience. People are pissed in Doran that their beloved hero was murdered in King's Landing by Gregor Clegane. That level of dramatic tension would probably not have existed five years after Oberyn's death. Because the Sand Snake's non-reaction doesn't make any sense, right? That his own daughters, who are fashioned to be in Oberyn's image, are just hanging out and just not caring that their dad is dead. I just, that doesn't make a lot of like character sense, especially of the characters that we know. Now, again, George may have had a different idea for the Sand Snakes. One idea I, ha I had is that potentially the Sand Snakes were a lot younger than their versions that appeared in A Feast for Crows. Like George aged up the Sand Snakes so that he could have a reasonable reaction to their death. And then a five-year gap version, they were maybe like 11 or 12 years old or a little bit older than that. And then after five years, they're a bit older than that. And that's when they have the ability to react to their father's death when they're a bit more mature and have gathered some political power to themselves. So, and then there's the story of Ariane and young Grift and Quentin and Daenerys. Do they work with a five years of story behind them? Maybe I, I but, but so much of their stories are timed to occur precisely. Quentin sets off from Dorne with the Dornish offer of marriage to Danny, and likely this would have occurred shortly after Oberyn was dispatched to King's Landing. Meanwhile, Arienne, having discovered Dorne's plans to make Quentin the Prince of Dorne, does she, she just sit around for years? Just be like, oh, well, I guess that's something that's going to happen. Now, to be fair, George could have tinkered with the timeline a bit, having Arianne find out much later about her father's plans, and for Dorne to send Quentin after Danny when the dust settled from Oberyn's demise. Or potentially, and this has been suggested as a uh, one solution to the fact that it's really fucking weird that Doran Martell sent Quentin just straight to Marine when he has, you know, his estranged wife living in Norvos, um, that he should have sent her, sent Quentin to Norvos first. And that should have been the official reason and sent him with a couple hundred dudes, a couple thousand dudes even because it's his son, you know, sort of thing. Um, you know, he could have sent Quentin over to Norvos for a little while to be fostered by his mother. But it gets back to the old question of dramatic tension. What makes a story feel alive? And a lot of it has to do with how characters and plots intersect in real time. Because plot momentum propels stories forward, and so much of that in A Song of Ice and Fire is directly related to how story ideas build off each other in the distant and near past. For Dorne, Oberyn and Dorne plotted vengeance for Elia and her children after Robert's Rebellion. Oberyn showed up for the first batch of vengeance in 299-300 AC in King's Landing, and then Oberyn dies. This propels the actions for the Sand Snakes. Arianne uses the death of Oberyn as a cover for her own plot to displace Doran by crowning Marcella. This, in turn, leads to the disruption of the plot by Doran and his agent, the maiming of Marcella, the death of Ares Okar, the journey of Balin Swan down to Doran, the conspiracy to blame it all on Darkstar, and the arrival of the Golden Company in Westeros and John Kyneton's letter to Doran Martell. And all of this occurs as Quentin finds out that adventure stinks. That's plot momentum and a time gap... And that time gap would have made this entire endeavor feel artificial, right? Can you imagine all of those plot events just starting to occur after five years? That's not in keeping with the story as told by George in the first three books, where the plot dynamics feed on one another and build forward and generate a natural momentum in the storytelling. So that's just a bit why I think the five-year gap was bad and George was right to abandon it. Of course, let me know what you think on Twitter, I guess, or a comment on Podbean, a live stream chat or a regular comment. I don't fucking care. I don't, I don't read the comments. But before I get out of here, I wanted to talk about one more thing with the five-year gap, whether it's truly gone. As we've talked about, George R. Martin's abandonment of the five-year gap didn't just occur in 2001. It took years for George to abandon the five-year gap really only deciding to abandon it in 2005 when he split A Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons into two separate books. Or did George actually truly abandon the five-year gap? Right after season eight of The Throne show aired, Elio Garcia Jr. and Linda Antonson, who, who of course are the founders of Westeros.org and George's co-authors for The World of Ice and Fire, and also people that George consults regularly on a somewhat regular basis about different um, 
different character questions that he has and history questions for the winds of winter released a video of them talking about the end of game of thrones in the video elio said something interesting about bran stark becoming king and how it might work in a song of ice and fire it's around the 90 minute mark of the video and i'm gonna i'm gonna paraphrase a little bit for clarity here because it's uh you know conversation doesn't really work as well so here's what elio said without some significant jump in time perhaps a five-year gap after the winds of winter Bran becoming king might not work. If George starts talking about big jumps in time again, he's probably trying to make the Bran Stark story work. So to do a little a little throat clearing, Elio wasn't saying that this will definitely happen. And he especially wasn't saying that George told him that this would occur, that this would occur after the winds of winter. However, it presents a fascinating dynamic. Even if the five-year gap for Dance with Dragons was abandoned, Will we still have a five-year gap in the winds of winter or between the winds of winter and a dream of spring here's i think the evidence for a time jump in the winds of winter or between winds and, and dream something you probably noticed in all the analysis of the five-year gap is how the timeline is more than a little unbalanced let's say because multiple storylines that were set to occur in a five-year gap version of a dance with dragons ended up being pushed to the winds of winter which is mostly Arya, Sansa, Bran, Cersei, and Danny stories. Meanwhile, the other storylines are basically on track with George's original conception of the story after the five-year gap, John and Stannis specifically. So what will George do in the Winds of Winter to rebalance everything in time? Because he has to try and time everything to occur in the most dramatically satisfying way possible. Moreover, is it believable that a young boy, a Stark boy at that, would sit the Iron Throne, especially given all of the tumult associated with Joffrey, Tommen, Young Griffs, and Danny's short and violent reigns? Perhaps not. So Bran, as an aged-up character, may work to offset this. Meanwhile, if Sansa becomes Queen of the North, which is something I absolutely think will happen by the end of A Song of Ice and Fire, her being an 18 or 19-year-old queen would work similarly as a more believable or realistic plot realization. Again, you, I don't mean to quote Bruce Bolton as the authority on something, on anything, but he does make that mention in uh, in Reek 3 from A Dance with Dragons, that boy lords are the bane of, 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 of a realm, essentially, which I think is something that, you know, Westeros is kind of learning, right? Because, uh, you know... You've had a lot of child kings in Westeros recently and child rulers and has not turned out so well for the subjects of those uh, of those kings and those rulers. Ultimately, though, I, I don't think a five-year gap is going to happen between the Winds of Winter and A Dream of Spring or sometime in the Winds of Winter. And I think that the story parameters are locked in with the last two books. Again, I go back to that quote about, if a 12-year-old kid has to conquer the world, then so be it. That reads like George is just going to power forward with the story set without a, a, ju a jump forward in the timeline. For that matter, all of the points I was making before about how an artificial jump for the timeline would disrupt the story momentum of A Song of Ice and Fire, those points still stand. I guess there's a point where maybe it's going to take a really fucking long time for Danny and the other point of view characters around her to make it to Westeros. And maybe the Northern storylines and the King's Landing storylines hit a lull that allows the story to jump forward for a few years. But I see no evidence by the end of A Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons that we're approaching that point. In fact, everything is speeding up plot-wise. Young Griff has landed in the Stormlands. Stannis and the Bolans are about to finally fight outside of Winterfell. Jon is assassinated, but we'll be back. Arya is coming to Rowan as a faceless man. Sansa is on the cusp of gaining a massive army for herself. The point of view characters around Marine have a ton of shit to survive and live through. Danny's on the Dothraki Sea going backwards to go forwards. Jamie's off visiting Lady Stoneheart for a chat. And you have Samo learning all the stories of, the, of Old Town and the Citadel, the secrets of the Citadel, and potentially the secrets of the Faceless Men. Aaron Dampere tied to the prow of the Silence, sailing into battle outside of Old Town. You have so many fucking storylines that are happening in this story that I just can't imagine that we're going to be jumping forward by a few years. But hey, who the fuck knows anything besides that I'm right? The five-year gap was bad. George was correct to abandon him, and you are a fucking coward if you disagree with me. So I think that's going to wrap us up for this analysis of the Jeff episode, why I think the five-year gap was bad and wrong. As always, thank you so much to everyone for listening. 
If you have the chance, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, anywhere and everywhere you find our podcasts. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash ASOF. Follow us on Twitter at ASOF or, or shoot us an email at ASOF at gmail.com. You could find me at Brennan Beefish on Twitter, Brennan Beefish on Reddit, and my website is brennanbeefish.substack.com. And uh, I never get to like shout out all of the uh, people for our High Lords and Ladies, so I just figured I'll just do it here because I think it's awesome. And thank you so much for your support. So thank you to all of our High Lords and Ladies on Patreon. Red Rulu himself, who has renounced his allegiance to the Squishers, Lady of a Thousand Words, Septim Maribald, the Shoeless Sage, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood, Nessie the Elusive, War of the Neck, Defender of the North, and the Keeper of Secrets, Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood, Sir Way of Course, Matt, War of the Sanguine Shores, Lord Sam K, Wisdom Benjicott, Alchemist of Sets and Quana, the Mage of Arts and Bo- of Boole and De Morgan, Tibbs, the Great of House Catnabbing, Lord J. Mannerly, Baker of the Frey Pies, Septon Mariful, Head of Hair, Lady Silverwing, Kabat the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks in the Castle Crimson Light, Sir Keith of, of House Corbray, Wielder of Lady Forlorn, Lady Andrew, Word of the Dubai Sands, Lord Young of the Ghost Woods, Lady Mira Reed, Wielder of Dark Sisters, Slayer of Tinfoil, Sir Will of the Anarcho Syndicalist Commune, Lord Clay, Sir Small Paul, Guardian of the Stonehaven, Defender of Donatar Castle, Septon T-Bone, the Low Septon, Refined Wrangler of Icy Arachnids, Lady Veronica, who has abandoned the inns, the orphans at the end of the crossroads to become the Queen of Memes. Shame on you. Lady Danielle of House Lannister, Titanium Pirate, Lady Joan, Lady Ranger of the Frost Fangs, Sydney of House Quo, Princess of Friendly Black Hotties in the Summer Isles, Random, Fierce Protector of Cripples, Bastards, and Broken Things, Sir Lady Jordan, Defender of the God's Eye, Lord Peter, not retire, Drinker of Strong Wine, and Lord Commander of the Flat Planetos Society. Lady of Rainy Afternoons, War of the Lake, Lady Cannon, House Motown, Goddess of Sips and Wines, Sir and Sir Andrew of H-Town. Thank you to all of our High Lord and Lady Patrons. We appreciate it. It's all amazing that you all support us. Thank you so much. So, join us next week for A Storm of Swords, John 1, in which Emmett returns, because you be probably going to be fucking tired of this face, as for his doppelganger and slash boyfriend, Mance Raider, who is just a few questions for sad boy Jonathan Snow. And of course, as we said last week, we'll be joined by returning guest Micah, the Quilt Lion, as one of our small council patrons. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you so much for your support. And we'll see you next week for a Storm of Swords, John 1.